When I was a teenager, the father of a friend of mine came to visit my family's church. Printed in the bulletin or the program that week was 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, which says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. My friend's father pointed out the phrase, fear God. And he says something like this, though I can't remember the exact words. He pointed to the phrase, fear God, and he said, this is what I don't like about Christianity. I don't believe that God is to be feared. Evidently, his heart was wicked. For his heart was like the heart of whom the psalmist is speaking in Psalm 36.1, where he says, There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's the heart attitude of the wicked. Evidently, my friend's father was a fool. For as Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He obviously hadn't even taken the first step towards wisdom. And his foolish and wicked heart showed in due time when he left his wife for another woman. When people think of the third commandment, they often think it's basically just prohibiting things like saying, oh my God, or something like this, in a trivial manner. And certainly that is prohibited by the third commandment. But the third commandment at its core is dealing with the attitude that my friend's father had, who trivialized God, and who showed that he trivialized God by saying explicitly and acting like God is not to be feared. I hope by the end of our message today we will all recognize that we're actually not so very different from my friend's father. And that we all are guilty of not fearing the Lord as we ought. My hope is that we will receive some admonishment, some correction in this area, that we will receive some good news taken from not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary, but that we would leave here really having the fear of God impressed upon us, and that we will leave here fearing Him more so as we ought. Here is the duty of the third commandment. Negatively stated, and I quote Wilhelmus Abrakel, who was a 17th century Dutch theologian. Negatively stated, the third commandment pertains to saying or doing something by which God is neither honored nor acknowledged to be the God who He is, but rather is dishonored. The third commandment pertains to saying or doing something by which God is neither honored nor acknowledged to be the God who He is, but rather is dishonored. When I was preaching on Psalm 96 a number of months ago here at CRBC, I made the point that when Psalm 96 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, it's assuming that God is glorious. Because you can't rightly ascribe something to someone who doesn't actually have that attribute or, or bear that property. 
To ascribe is to recognize what somebody already has. So you, you ascribe speed to Olympic sprinters. And you ascribe strength to Olympic weightlifters. You ascribe authorship of books to their author. And so, likewise, we ascribe to God the glory due His name. What's prohibited in the third commandment is not ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name. Trivializing He who ought not to be trivialized. Acting like He is not weighty, who is in fact weighty. Do you realize that's the literal meaning of the word glory? Weight. Heaviness. Taking the heavy God then and treating Him in a light manner, this is what is prohibited in the third commandment. Acting like the glorious God is not glorious. Acting like the heavy God is light and trivial. This is what is prohibited in the third commandment. Positively stated, because we remember that when something in the Ten Commandments is prohibited, the opposite duty is enjoined. The opposite duty is commanded. So let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. This is what Ephesians teaches us. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Have God. The opposite is commanded in each of these commandments. So you ought not to treat the heavy God like He's light and to be trifled with. You ought not to treat the glorious God like He's not glorious. Therefore, you ought to treat the heavy God with appropriate reverence. You ought to treat the glorious God like He really is glorious. You ought not to take Him lightly, but you ought to give Him due weight in your thinking, in your priorities, in your affections. The heavy God should weigh heavily upon these things. We should say and do things which honor and acknowledge God to be the glorious and weighty God that He is. We should cultivate the heart attitude underneath these things that leads to those things. In other words, fear God. We should fear God. The third commandment is teaching us not to treat God lightly and trivially, but to fear Him. Fear God. Have the heart attitude which recognizes His heaviness, His glory. And then from that heart attitude, say and do things which honor and acknowledge God to be the glorious, weighty God that He is. This is what it means to fear God at a basic level. More on this in a moment as we consider some applications for us a little bit more specifically. Let's go to some negative applications. In other words, don't do this. Certainly this command teaches us not to speak disrespectfully about God. Not to speak disrespectfully about God or to outwardly do disrespectful things towards God. This is sort of the crassest, most obvious violation of this commandment. is speaking and doing things that are intentionally disrespectful to God. Here's an example. Isaiah 36. Isaiah 
In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, that's a military commander, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So this great army surrounds Jerusalem. King Hezekiah sends out a small envoy. No threat to them. They're out there to talk, not to fight. And in verse 4, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust, now that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So he's saying, Egypt can't rescue you. Our army is much more powerful than the army of Egypt. But he goes on. And to our point, in verse 7, he says, But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So in other words, they get where this conversation is going. And they don't want everybody in Jerusalem to lose heart. But Rabshakeh continues, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? 
violation of the third commandment right there speaking very disrespectfully about Yahweh the fool says in his heart there is no God my friend's father I don't believe that God is to be feared disrespecting God is certainly prohibited I think we can realize and understand when our hearts are disrespectful to God and our words are disrespectful to God when our actions are disrespectful to God I don't think this one's rocket science so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one but all that kind of talk is prohibited you don't disrespect Yahweh don't entertain a heart attitude that is going to make your mouth go there Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But here's one that I think Christians can be guilty of. Speaking trivially or lightly about the things of God. Or using His name in a trivial manner. This is actually really on the same spectrum as the words of the Rabshakeh. You understand? So the words of the Rabshakeh may be way out on one end of the spectrum. But speaking trivially or lightly about God as if He is a light God and not a heavy God. As if He is not a glorious God. This is a sin on the same spectrum. Biblically, here's another example. Or here's an example of this. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 17. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So in other words, they thought that the name of Jesus was like a magic trick. You say it, and then these things happen. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who was, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See the connection? These guys are not speaking disrespectfully about Jesus, but they're, they're treating Jesus as if He's a tool in their hand rather than the great God. As it, rather than seeing themselves as tools in the hands of Jesus, they're seeing Jesus as a tool in their own hands. Trivializing. Treating Him lightly. Some do almost this very thing today, you know. And they don't always get beat up by demons for doing it. But some people treat the name of Jesus like it's an incantation. And you hear them, you hear them talking and you hear them praying. It's like, do you, do, you, do you know who you're talking about? Are, are you even talking to Him? Or are you just repeating in the name of Jesus like an incantation? 
We've got to be aware of that. But that's not the only way that we can trivialize and take Him lightly. Exodus 5 verse 2, Pharaoh says to Moses, Who is Yahweh that I should obey His voice? This one's kind of on the borderline between, you could say that that's just outright disrespect. But it could also just be a trivializing. Like we have our gods in Egypt. What makes Yahweh any different? I'm Pharaoh. Why should I listen to him? Treating, treating Yahweh as if he's light. Here's some other ways that we could do it, right? People have told me, I this might, sound like, this might sound like a joke, but I don't want it to be, come across like a joke. But people told me, old Bajans, when they sit down, what do they say? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Or, oh, Lord, or something like this. People, people tell, me, tell it to me like it's a joke. Right? Or people just do that, but they do it mindlessly. They're not actually saying... Right? Thank you, Jesus, that my decrepit body has found some rest. Which would actually be a very legitimate prayer. Right? But when you just get in the habit of just calling the Lord's name. There was... I was on a flight. I think I was coming into Martinique, I believe, a couple of years ago. On Liak. And there was a young lady who... One of, one of the passengers that was on the plane before me who had boarded on a previous island saw her come out and said, it's a young lady, it looks like it might be her first flight because she was just strutting as proud as a peacock out to the plane and she looked like she was 18 or 19 years old. And the plane's coming in to Martinique and the wings are like going like this. And the, the plane's going up and down and I'm like... <laughs> right? But the plane, the plane landed. And I heard a lady on the other side go, Thank you, Jesus. Okay, but I don't think she was calling the Lord's name in vain. I think she was actually scared, as were many of the other passengers on the plane. And she was really thanking the Lord. You understand the difference, though? If you're actually saying, Thank you, Jesus. Right? Or you're, or you're in a desperate situation, you cry, Oh, Lord. Right? Or grief overtakes you. And you're sobbing. Oh God, oh God, oh God. This is not taking the Lord's name in vain. But when these things become punctuation marks for us, or a little salt and pepper that we just throw into our speech thoughtlessly, this is not right. This is failing to recognize the greatness of God. But here's another one joking about. Biblical things. There may be a line here somewhere on this side of which it's appropriate to have some humor. But we have to be careful when we start joking about the Bible, you know. There was a story told even of somebody as esteemed as R.C. Sproul, now gone on to glory. But I believe it was 
C.J. Mahaney, who has no hair, who said he was at a conference and sitting in the front row with R.C. Sproul. And when it was his turn to speak, R.C. Sproul says something like, go up, bald head. Obviously meaning as a joke. And he took it that way. But when I hear a joke like that, that makes me think of the third commandment, you know. Because the biblical story that that references is when some little children were mocking one of the prophets. And he called down a curse upon them and bears came out of the woods and mauled the little children. You think, what kind of God would do that? The kind of God that is not light but heavy. Alright, the kind of God that doesn't want you joking about his spokesman. The kind of God that doesn't want you joking about his word. That's the kind of God that would do that. Nick Bazig, who's a Presbyterian minister in the U.S., actually just posted on Twitter this week. It was very timely. He said, as a new believer, I joked about something in Scripture. The man who mentored me said in response, the truth of God's Word is the only way my lost loved ones can be saved. Making trivial jokes about Scripture is tantamount to taking God's name in vain. Sobering reminder. We need to go lightly here. Anytime that we might be tempted to use humor to bring a transcending God a little bit closer down to our level, to make a heavy God a little bit lighter, to make a glorious God a little bit less glorious, we've got to be careful here. These are all things that are prohibited. Again, these are all don't do that. These are all negatives. Don't do these things. Don't entertain a heart attitude that's going to make you take God or His Word lightly. Don't entertain then an attitude that's going to make you take God and His Word and the things enjoined upon you in His Word lightly. Don't joke about disobedience. Don't joke about disobeying God. I, you know, I've heard people say like, well, maybe the Lord will strike me with a thunderbolt for saying this, but that's not right. Don't, don't entertain the heart attitude that makes words like that come out of your mouth. Don't talk about that. If you shouldn't be saying it, don't say it. If you shouldn't be doing it, don't do it. If you should do it, do it. We should be serious about obedience. We should be serious about the things that God has prescribed for us in His Word. Think, for example, of churchmanship. People will say, well, I take God seriously, but I just don't think that you have to be part of a church. Well, does God in His Word seem to suggest that you should be part of a church? Yes, you should. Does, does God seem to think that it's important to be gathered together? Or does God think that it's neither here nor there? Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. To not take the things that God prescribes seriously. The things that God says are important and to say, well, they're not that important. These are serious things. 
Don't do that. Positively stated now. Do this. Positively stated. Fear God. Fear God. How do we think about this? One of the first things that comes out of the mouth of most ministers when they begin to talk about the fear of God is this. You don't actually have to be afraid of God. Well, who said that? Fear God, fear God may well actually include being afraid of God, you know. Let's listen, let's listen to the way that Jesus talks about it. Do not fear those who can only kill the body and after that have nothing else that they can do. Rather, fear Him who after He has killed the body has authority to cast both the body and the soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Now a pastor is going to come up and say, well, you, you shouldn't actually be afraid of God. Here's the, here's the crux of the issue. Whether you need to actually be afraid of God or not is whether you have something to be afraid of. Here's the crux of the issue. A number of years ago, I watched a documentary about some extreme snowboarders who were taken in helicopters way down to the tip of South America, to these untouched mountain ranges. And they were dropped out of the helicopter to snowboard down these pristine mountains. And these are the kind of peaks that probably literally nobody has ever snowboarded before, I would imagine. There's no chairlifts, there's no trail up to the top of the mountain. The only way you're getting there is by helicopter. And they drop these guys out. If you can find the footage on YouTube, it's a really, it's eight or ten minutes long. It's a promotion for Red Bull, so they're all wearing Red Bull helmets and Red Bull gear and so on and so forth. But it's really neat footage to watch these guys coming down the mountain and there's, they jump huge chasms that look like they go way down. They make enormous drops. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's cool to watch. Listen, if I was on that helicopter, on that way up there, I would be afraid. Okay, I would not just respect the mountain, I would be afraid of the mountain. I'd be like, no, please don't drop me out of the helicopter. I beg you, please let me stay. I don't want to go down there. Because I am not ready to meet the mountain. The snowboarders, on the other hand, are ready to meet the mountain. So they have a respect and an awe and, if I can say it this way, a reverence for the mountain. They recognize that if they make the wrong turn, they could well die on their way down the mountain. And so they respect it. They respect what they're about to do. But they're ready to go do it. Another example that we could use to bring things a little closer to home would be the sea. Mel and I watched a movie a couple of months ago. It was a terrible movie. I do not recommend it. I unequivocally anti-recommend it. It's called The Perfect Storm. And it came recommended to me by a friend who I trusted. But it was actually a terrible movie. That's besides the point, however. In the movie, it's based on a true story. And these, these fishermen leave 
their little fishing town on the east coast of the U.S. And they've been having a hard season, though, so they decide to go a little bit farther out than normal because it's kind of the last time that they can go out before the weather gets too bad. It's the last time for the season, so they go farther out. Basically what happens is they get caught in the convergence of three storm systems that all converge in one place. And in the movie, I know it's CGI graphics and all this kind of thing, but the sea is heaving and billowing with enormous, enormous waves. And these days they can do graphics pretty good. So even as I'm sitting on my couch, my heart is racing about this. I, I, would be, I would be terrified to be in that kind of situation. I would also be terrified to go swimming at Cattle Wash because I am a terrible swimmer. All right, I can't, I can't swim very good. So we don't even need to go to that extreme before I'm actually scared of the sea. But others could easily, I don't think anyone could go to the Flemish cap where these fishermen ended up and not be scared because nobody would be ready for that. But there's lots of people who could just go swimming in Catawash. The issue is, are you ready for this? Are you prepared for this? Are you okay to meet the mountain? Are you okay to get into the sea? Are you ready for that? This is analogous to the fear of God. God is like a mountain, or God is like a sea, or God is like a lion, and it all depends on how you're related to Him. The lion could crush the lion cub with one swipe of his paw, but he won't because the lion cub is his kid. Likewise, when we trust in Jesus, what it means is that we're ready to meet the mountain. When we trust in Jesus, we are prepared to go into the sea. When we trust in Jesus, we are prepared to lay down and sleep in the lion's den because we are one of the cubs. If you know Jesus, if Christ has atoned for your sins, if you are reconciled to God by faith in Christ Jesus, then you don't need to literally be afraid of God. Then you can have the same kind of awe and reverence that the snowboarders had when they're dropped at the top of the mountain. Then you can have the same kind of enjoyment that a sailor has when they're out on the open sea. Then you can have the same kind of enjoyment of God as a lion cub with its father. The adoration, the respect, the reverence never leaves because it's still a mountain. And the sea is still powerful and deep. And the lion cub is still the king of the jungle. But because you are rightly related to the mountain, because you are rightly related to the sea, because you are rightly related to the lion, you don't have to literally be afraid. This is something what the fear of God means. We still recognize the greatness, the glory, the heaviness of God. Even those who are quite comfortable at sea. 
respect to see. And when things started to get a little choppy, they head for the shore. Even those who are quite comfortable doing that kind of extreme snowboarding that I was talking about would know better than to shoot off a gun in an untouched mountain range like that and cause an avalanche. We need to respect and reverence that even though we are God's children, God is still God. He needs to be treated as such. Heavy, glorious. So how do we cultivate that respect? How do we cultivate the fear of God? This is real simple. Look at Him. Keep your eyes there. Seek Him. Until you find that you have that right kind of fear in your heart. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you really literally have nothing better to do than to cultivate the fear of God in your own soul. Because you can't take more steps in wisdom until you get that step right. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Not the end of wisdom. It's not icing on the cake of mature Christianity. Like you can be, you can be a decent Christian and be fairly mature, but you just haven't quite learned the fear of God yet. Even if it's your first day as a Christian, learn to fear God. Get your eyes on God as He's revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And keep your eyes there until you fear Him. Look at creation. All of the examples I just gave you, all of the illustrations I just gave you, were illustrations taken from created things. Look at the one who made the mountains. Look at the one who made the sea. Look at the one who made lions. Think about that. Meditate on that. Meditate on that. Meditate on Him. Until you find that respect, that awe welling up in your soul for God. Then look at the Exodus. Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? Famous last words of a fool. Look at the Exodus. Look at the ten plagues. You know why God did those? To get glory over a nation and its gods. The scriptures tell us. To show that I am heavier than Pharaoh. To show that I am heavier than any god that Pharaoh's sorcerers can call upon. That's why I did that. To get glory over a nation and its gods. Think about that. Think about the lengths that God went to in that instance. To bear His mighty right arm. To bring His people out. To take the mightiest nation on earth at that time. And put them in the dust. In fact, lower than the dust. To put them literally lower than the dust. Below sea level. And not on dry land below sea level. But below the sea. Think about that. Keep your eyes there. Till you see the glory of God. 
Do you know what happened to the Rabshakeh and his army? Do you know what happened to Sennacherib who boasted so pompously against Yahweh? Ezekiel, or pardon me, Isaiah 37, 33 to 38. This is the Lord's response to the Rabshakeh's arrogant speech. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it by a, with a shield, or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. Listen. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. You want to cultivate the fear of the Lord? Look at the one who sent his angel to go kill 185,000 Assyrians. Look at the one who countered those boastful words of the Rabshakeh. With just and holy violence. Think about that. That's the kind of God that God is. He's heavy. He's glorious. He is not to be trivialized. Interestingly, the Rabshakeh said, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. What happened? The Lord delivered him. <laughs> Then what happened to Sennacherib? He was killed where? In the house of Nisroch, his God. What was the message there? Yahweh is more glorious than Nisroch. Nisroch can't save. Yahweh can. Look at these things. Pour over the scriptures. Day by day. Look at the Bible. Over and over again. Look at these grand, glorious events. Also notice even the subtle details. Think even of Nadab and Abihu. And Uzzah, of whom we spoke last week. What kind of God kills his own priests? For offering, presumably with good intentions, a kind of worship that he did not command? A God who is heavy, not a God who is light. A God who is heavy and glorious. What kind of God kills someone for steadying the ark with his hand when the oxen stumble? Not a God who is light. Not a God who is to be trifled with. A God who is heavy. A God who is glorious. Look at all of the big things in Scripture that concern nations and world events. Look at even the details of Scripture. The way God deals with individuals. 
Look at Him and see that He is a heavy God. God is a glorious God. He is a weighty God. Keep your eyes on the pages of this book until you see that God is a glorious God. Until you no longer feel like taking His name lightly and trivially. Until you no longer feel like joking about this book. About joking about the duties, the imperatives enjoined upon you in this book. Until you no longer feel like laughing when others take God lightly. Look at this book. Look at its pages. Look at who God says by the inspiration of His Holy Spirit through the holy men of old. Look at who He says, I am. Until you fear Him. Look at all of these things. And ultimately, look at the cross. The cross shows us God's glorious wrath, you know. God's weighty wrath. The cross shows us that God will not even exempt His own Son. That is how serious God is about sin. God goes through with it. God doesn't stop Himself the way that Abraham was stopped when he was about to offer up his son. God goes through with it. God pours out his wrath. He makes his son drink the cup of his wrath down to the dregs. All of it. The very last drop. This is the cup that Christ was talking about in the garden, you know. Christ was not a wimp. He wasn't afraid of the physical suffering. Lots of men in history have stood valiantly in the face of physical suffering. Jesus wasn't crying and sweating in the garden because something was going to hurt his body. He was crying and sweating in the garden because of the cup of God's wrath prophesied throughout the Old Testament that it would be poured out upon nations. That cup is the cup that Jesus drank in the place of nations. He was going to bear the sins of His people there on the cross. The cross shows us God's heavy wrath. His glorious wrath. Think about that. Meditate on that. Where do we see God's wrath most fully poured out? Not in the drowning of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Not in the slaughter of 185,000 Assyrians. At the cross. Where God pours out His wrath upon His Son. Whom He made a propitiation to be received by faith. In order that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Think about that. The cross is a train that almost hit you. One thing I miss about Canada is the sound of trains. I like trains 
I like the sound that they make. I like them. There's something that I just enjoy about them that I can't put my finger on. But one of the things that I think I like is the power. Even if you're stopped in your car beside a train track, the ground shakes and you can feel the vibrations in your seat even while you're sitting in your car as the train goes by 10 feet in front of you. If you got hit by one of those things, it's over for you, not for the train. It's over for you. The cross is the train that almost hit you. Think about that until you feel the fear of God welling up in your soul. But the train hit Christ. And it hit Christ for you. And it didn't hit Christ by accident for you. It didn't hit Christ unintentionally for you. Christ stood in the tracks, so to speak. It's as if he said to the Father, hit me with this train. For you. Now that's another kind of heaviness. That's heavy grace. That's glorious grace. When Ephesians 1 talks about God doing this work of salvation to the praise of His glorious grace. It means something like that. No one has ever loved you like that. I don't know your life stories well enough in every case to talk intelligibly about who has loved you the most. About who you felt the most love from in terms of other human relationships. Who has mattered to you the most and who, to whom you have mattered the most. But I can say this, no one's love, no one's grace has been as heavy for you as the love and grace that was shown at the cross when Christ Jesus was hit by the train for you. Think about that. That glorious good news of the gospel. You see, God, His holiness is unyielding and inflexible. He won't change the rules for you because He's a heavy God. But because He's a heavy God, He is able and He has been willing to do a heavy thing to reconcile you to Himself, to bring you home, to make you His own, to love you, to pardon you, to forgive you. Heavy grace. You see, the heaviness of God is not just what He might, thinking about what He might do to you and fearing Him for what He might do to you. The fear of God is contemplating also for Christians 
what He has done for you and fearing Him for what He has done for you. See, the cross doesn't make God any less heavy. This work of salvation that He accomplished through His Son doesn't make Him any less heavy. It doesn't make Him any less glorious. If anything, it manifests more of His glory. Because we see that in addition to this heavy wrath, which stems from this heavy holiness, we see this heavy grace and this heavy love. So we have a more well-rounded, full, stereo sound picture of a heavy God. So the third commandment certainly does prohibit speaking of God, taking up His name verbally in a trivial way. But it strikes as something much deeper than that. It strikes about the attitudes of a heart towards Him. We ought to have attitudes of reverence, awe, and worship. And if you're an unbeliever, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, you literally should be afraid. We ought to, all of us, fear God. This is the positive implication of the third commandment. Not just don't disrespect Him and don't treat Him as light and trifling, but implicitly do respect Him. Do treat Him as a heavy God. Fear Him.